Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Adrian Goldberg's talk show. This time, Professor Carl Chin talking about the real Peaky Blinders based on his book, Peaky Blinders, The Real Story. Now, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that I've already interviewed Carl about this before. However, this is, if you like, the deluxe extended edition recorded live at the Glee Club in Birmingham on the 16th of January 2020. If you want to come down and see these live shows, I can happily put you on the mailing list. Just contact me, Adrian Goldberg at hotmail.com. And if you'd like to sponsor the shows or my podcasts, by all means, get in touch. It would be lovely to hear from you. In the meantime, enjoy Peaky Blinders, The Real Story with Professor Carl Chin. Hello, Adrian Welcome. Thank you very much indeed for turning out. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Now, tonight's guest, the person you've all come to see, is a proper Brummy legend, an historian of the working classes, telling the stories that had never been told before about the people who are the backbone of this city and of this country. He's a broadcaster. He's a great newspaper columnist as well. More than any of that, he is a truly great bloke, and I can say that having known him for many years. He's um, about to separate fact from fiction about the Peaky Blinders. His latest book, Peaky Blinders, The Real Story, The History of Birmingham's Most Notorious Gangs. It is, I should tell you, with many tens of thousands of sales, a Sunday Times bestseller, no less. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Mr. Carl Ching. Now, Carl, the first thing I want to say about tonight is we're united here, at least in the, at the very least, in an interest and I hope a love of Peaky Blinders. I love the television series. I thought season five, the last series, was probably the best yet. Personally, I thought it was fantastic. In terms of separating fact from fiction, which is Carl's job as an historian, one thing I want to declare, and I'm sure Carl wants to declare it, is that none of this is designed in any way no. to take away from Stephen Knight's fantastic television creation. Not, not at all. For me, as a, a Brummie and a West Midlander, <laughs> I will praise Stephen Knight because the series has drawn positive attention to us. What did we have to boast about on the TV before? Crossroads. <laughs> <laughs> they forgot their lines, the set swabbled, and we were humiliated three nights a week, weren't we? <laughs> so, on a serious note, this has been a major series, international phenomenon, that has drawn lots of attention to Birmingham. It's drawn, secondly, as a result of that attention, lots of new visitors to Birmingham. By the way, I don't think the council has really looked at the way they could work with Stephen and others to make more of that. And I think there's a, a third thing that, that's important with the series. It's actually brought in a lot of young people to look at history in a different way. You know, so whether or not their realities are different, and they are, from the drama, we've got to praise the drama for me for those three things. And lots of youngsters now are finding out more about the 1920s and 30s, and most importantly, their own family stories. So yes, I agree with you. Yeah, okay, now let's talk about the Peaky Blinders then. And I've, I've read Carl's book that I do recommend to you. There's a little merch stall over there. We will be signing copies later. Arcadian merch stall. <laughs> 
And uh, the story of the Peaky Blinders, as you describe it in the book, Carl, uh, the TV series, as you'll all know, is set in the immediate years after World War One. Yeah. There were people called the Peaky Blinders, but they actually existed in Birmingham before World War One. Yeah, they did. It was very much a pre-First World War phenomenon. I don't know, I'm 63, and I'm sure there's a, one or two of my age group around here this evening. I'd heard about the Peaky Blinders growing up, but anybody else? Yeah, and all that we really had heard about them was the story of the razor blades. Am I correct? That's all we heard. That Not like in the series where they say they slashed across the eyes. Because there's a problem with that, to try and slash across the eyes. The bridge of the nose. The story I heard growing up was they slashed the foreheads. Hence causing blood to go in to the eyes to blind them. So, I'd heard about them growing up. I first wrote about them in my doctoral thesis in 1986. I researched, I was writing a thesis about Sparkbrook, but I, the first chapter was really looking at Birmingham in the late 19th century. And if you pick up history books about Birmingham, they will all tell you that we were the city of a thousand trades, and we were, weren't we? And we were proud of that, weren't we? Yeah. And they would tell us that after Joseph Chamberlain's mayorality, Birmingham was the best governed city in the world, and it was then. But what they don't tell you is also denigrated as one of the most violent cities in the kingdom, the city of the Peaky Blinders. So I first started researching them back in the 1980s. I first wrote about some of the people that are in the series, Darby Sabini, Billy Kimber, Alfie Solomon, in a book of mine in 1991. I'll tell you more about that later on. The Changretta series four, was it? The Changretta, Luca Changretta, comes home from New York. The Changretta's descendants of friends of mine, I first wrote about them in a book about the Italians of Birmingham in 1995. So I've been researching for many years, and the Peaky Blinders is really a term of fashion. Birmingham, Manchester, Salford, Liverpool, Glasgow, and parts of London were the only British cities with a major backstreet gang problem in the mid to late 19th century. There were horrible men everywhere. There were little gangs everywhere. But the rampant ruffianism that bedeviled and blighted the lives, not only of the police, but of the hard-working, respectable poor. And I want to emphasise this point. They were the ones that suffered the depredations of the real gangsters daily. That rampant ruffianism was only present in them cities. In Glasgow, a lot of the gangs were sectarian and Protestants against Catholic. In Liverpool, they were called corner boys because they met on the corners. In Manchester and Salford, they were called scotlers. In London, street ruffians until a rowdy bank holiday weekend in August 1898 when a new word came into the English language, hooligan. And in Birmingham, they were also known as street ruffians from the 1860s when they emerged. Then from 1872, these backstreet gangs are called sloggers, slogging gangs. And the word slog, I wanted to find out where that came from, Adrian, so did a lot of research. And it's the earliest reference in the, the big Oxford English Dictionary is from 1824, I think, where to slog was to strike a fierce blow in pugilism, barefisted boxing. So from 1872, the gangs are known as sloggers and slogging gangs. Then in 1890, a new term comes in, Peaky Blinder. And this was all started by an attack on a guy in Digbeth, yeah. very close to where the Digbeth Dining Club is held these days, wasn't it? Uh, near the Rainbow Pub? Yeah, got to correct you there though, Borsley. <laughs> and, and the old crowd is not in Digbeth, it's in Denny Ten. <laughs> Am I right? 
And I wish the council would start saying our old place names, don't you? Instead of letting our districts disappear, sorry. It was a guy called George Eastwood. He'd been in the Rainbow Pub, which was in... Bordley. In Bordley. And uh, <laughs> there's a clue there because it's on the corner of Adley Street and High Street, Bordley. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, this poor fellow, George Eastwood, and this was the first known reference in print to the Peaky Blinders. Yeah, the gangs had been there from the 1860s. I wanted to try and find out where they come from. It's like knife crime today, isn't it? Terribly. You know, the news today is so pertinent, isn't it? But is it 14,000? Offences, people cautioned or arrested for not having knives, a record. Where does it come from? It's not a void, is it? It doesn't just emerge from nowhere. And what happens is, in the 1840s, the police force in Birmingham and Manchester's new. And at first, the police are a bit wary of stopping young working class lads gathering in big groups on a Sunday afternoon, the Lord's Day, playing rough sports and pitch and toss, betting on coins. Then from the 1850s and 60s, the middle class are putting pressure on the police to put it down. They see it as an abomination of gathering on the Lord's Day. But there's a young population. It's not like today an Asian population. There's no parks. There's no swimming baths. There's no free libraries. So they're gathering on waste ground. And the police try and put it down. And that's what, in my opinion, leads to the gangs, a reaction to the middle class attempts through the police to put down the gangs. By the 1870s, these backstreet gangs and sluggers are rampant. They're attacking each other. There's a feud for over 30 years, for example, between the Park Street gang, Selfridges overlooks it now, four streets down, Milk Street. They feud for over 30 years. Two young lads are killed, as well as vicious beatings. But then in 1890, as you mentioned, Adrian, this new term comes in, Peaky Blinder. George Eastwood is an inoffensive chap. He comes out of Arthur Street in Smalley. So if you're going along the Coventry Road, come to the island, McDonald's Island, just up on the right, where the bus depot was, is, Arthur Street is there. He's a teetotaler, and he must like the atmosphere of a pub, but unfortunately he's picked the wrong evening. He goes into the rainbow on the Saturday night, he orders a ginger beer. Three men, according to the Birmingham Mail, with an even, evil reputation come in. One of them I'd known for a long time, I'd, I'd researched in Thomas Mucklow. I've got the second guy now, George Groom, his brother. Brother-in-law, sorry. They both come out of Adley Street, they're sluggers. And there's a third man. And they start to insult poor George. This is the important point. They're picking on decent people, as well as fighting each other. And Mucklow pushes George. He's a teetotaler, he's drinking a ginger beer. He says, what are you drinking that tack for? What are you drinking that rubbish for? And poor old George looks at the barman and says, Am I not entitled to drink what I'd like to? And, yeah, okay, he says, of course you are. And it dies down. And a bit later, according to the mail, about quarter to 11, Mucklow, groom, the unknown man, leave. George then leaves, must think it's clear, and he leaves at 11 o'clock to go back up to Arthur Street. He's going to turn left from the Rainbow, from the bar in Adley Street, that bar entrance, go into the two railway viaducts to turn right up, up along Opportunity Street to get to the Coventry Road. He never made it. They come out the dark, they chase him. Can you imagine the fear he must have been in? They get him under one of the two viaducts. I think it's the furthest one, the one closest to Upper and Lower Trinity Street, because they viciously beat him to the ground. Mucklow's shouting, give it to him, hot lads. The newspaper report is graphic. Groom hits him, he goes down, smashes his head on the floor. They start kicking him about the street with still toe-cap boots. That's the only difference between the sluggers of Birmingham, the Scotlands of Manchester and Salford. 
For Scotland's wear brass tip clogs. The Birmingham gangs still toe cap boots, but they have bell bottom trousers, tight to the knee and splayed out. And they wear what's called a daff, a, a, a long hanky, a bit like the old cowboys films, you know, them long hankies, but they had them like a V at the front. But these hankies would be knotted, twisted round the neck and knotted, waistcoat, collarless shirt. So George has been punched, he's fallen down, smashed his head, been kicked, and now groom takes off the most important weapon of the Scotlers and of the Sloggers of Birmingham, his belt. Some of us older ones remember them Schroeder belts, won't we? Thick belts, weren't they? Heavy buckles. And they would wrap them around the wrist, leaving about eight inches, and then they'd buckle it and slash and slash. George was eventually rushed to hospital. He was in the old Queen's Hospital, which became the Ackley in Bath Row. Three weeks. And he had to have an operation called trepanning, a piece of the skull cut out to relieve the pressure on his brain. Eventually, he escaped from them, he ran, must be fear, was given succour, shelter in a local house. Mucklow was the only one arrested, he was sent down for nine months hard labour, and in the Birmingham Mail on the Monday night, it said the attack was carried out by the gang of Pinkley Climbers. They were actually the Adley Street Sloggers. And the 1890s, the first time the term Peaky Blinder is used in the local press. That suggests to me, and I'm sure you'd agree with me, that if it's used in the press for the first time then, it's been used on the street before then. But obviously, I'll never be able to prove that. And then the term Peaky Blinder comes into use really, Adrian, for men who are in slogging gangs. And by the late 1890s, it's become the generic term for hooligans in Birmingham. So men who might be sluggers, but also might just be violent men who like attacking other people full stop. But the story about people wearing cleat caps with razor blades in, not much evidence for that. No evidence at all. No evidence at all. And I think the fact is, it's very important to bear in mind, it was a myth that arose. First of all, they didn't need safety razor blades. They used their boots. They used their belts. They're poor men. They own them, don't they? They used to be what was called in Birmingham back streets. I'm sure some of some again of my age and above heard of them. Dockers. You ever heard of them? The cobblestones from the street that they would throw each other. There was bricks everywhere, weren't there? They'd smash bricks up and throw them. So they didn't need them, they're poor men. Secondly, there's absolutely no evidence. I've gone through hundreds of court cases, police accounts, newspaper reports, never mentioned. Thirdly, disposable safety razor blades were not invented and painted by King Gillette in America until 1904. <laughs> they were not sold in great numbers in England until 1910, by which time the gangs had disappeared. Only just, but they've gone. And moreover, a f set of five best Sheffield steel razor blades cost seven, 37 shillings and sixpence. For those of you who are young, that's nearly two nicker. <laughs> a poor man would be lucky to earn a pound a week if he was lucky. Are you going to spend twice as much as you've got coming in on a weapon that is not going to be effective. Because when I, I do this on my tours and I say to people, go on, look, I just happen to have one. <laughs> Come up here, Aki. Come up here. What's your name? Yeah. Come up, Dad. Oh, God, yeah. What's he going to do? <laughs> Come up here, right, Dad. Right, right Dad. Look at everybody there. Right, we're having a boss, look. Uh, Who do you support? Wolves. Oh, <laughs> I'm a villain fan, so this will do. <laughs> right, you're going to slash me with that now. 
Right. So what's he done, folks? <laughs> Cut your own fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Try it another way. Now what's he done? Let's Help you open up your body, haven't you? Yeah. Can we give Dan a big round of applause, please? Yeah. It's not easy. It's not feasible. So, number one, there's no evidence. Number two, the razor blades didn't come in until as the gangs of dispute. Interestingly, in the First World War, all the British Tommies were supplied with cutthroat razors. It was the American troops under General Pershing who came in in 1917 who had the disposable safety razor blades. It's really a term for the fashion. And the main reason why they didn't use their flat caps, the first Peaky Blinders did not wear them. They wore Billy Cox. Anybody heard that term before? It's a bowler hat. A kind of bowler hat that was the working man's headgear. Very fortunate to have a wonderful collection we have in the West Midlands of photographs on Birmingham City Police Force. It's one of the first police forces to photograph criminals. And I've got a couple of photos, one's in the book, of a guy called Charles Battle. He's got the, the daff on, and he's got his Billy Cock on. Now, what was the fashion? Two really rare accounts I found of people, men who grew up in the period, said what they liked to do with the Billy Cock, close cropped hair, but with a quiff, and they liked to show off the quiff. So they would pull the Billy Cock to one side. When the flat cap come in, they did that. So what's the peak doing to the eye? Blinding it, covering it up. So it's a great, great story. It's infused with drama, dread and fear, but it is a myth. <laughs> Sorry. And you talk about these uh, these guys on uh, Park Street in Birmingham having a row with the people on Milk Street that yeah. lasted for 30 years. There was also pre-war, wasn't there, something called the Garrison Street... The Garrison Lane Vendetta. The Garrison Lane Vendetta. I don't know if anybody else in here has heard about, about this. The gangs disappear in the early 20th century. By 1910, the Birmingham Mail, the Indian Dispatch, are writing about the gangs in the past tense. They've disappeared for a number of reasons. Stronger policing, led by a new chief constable, Charles Horton Rafter, appointed in 1899, a Protestant from Belfast. Ring any bells? <laughs> now, unlike Campbell in the series who's sectarian, Rafter wasn't. His deputy was an Irish Catholic from Mayo, Michael McManus. Had lots of Irish Catholics, stronger policing. My great uncle said to me, they were born in 1892 and 1997, I was very fortunate to interview them and lots of other older people who gave me first hand information. My great two great uncle Bill and Uncle Walt said, Carl, he said they had to be 14 stone, 5 foot 10, and know how to fight. And they had to fight, there was a war going on in the streets. We wouldn't excuse it today, but they're going around in pairs now instead of one. Birmingham Police Force was badly undermanned. Rafter has a big recruitment campaign. Found an advertisement, five foot ten minimum height. Exactly what my great uncles had told me. Stronger policing, new sports coming in. Instead of the streets fighting each other in Manchester and Salford, they start playing football. It's a participation sport. And then there's another new sport which I think has a major impact. Boxing. Father Pinchard, you know when you stand at New Street Station, and you look down from the high steps into Hill Street, just across from the Crown, yeah. sort of a back Sabbath there. That was one of the toughest, poorest streets in Birmingham there, Hill Street. And Father Pinchard, a high church of England vicar, had a community hall there. He started a rudimentary boxing club. The lads fought in their clothes. 
All he had was two pairs of boxing gloves and a ring. So they have a big, big effect. But in 1908, the worst outbreak of gang violence in Birmingham's history emerged, unfortunately, for the last, what, 20 odd years, when we've seen gang war between different gangs in the city over drugs. This was a war that went on for four years. And the Sheffield Star newspaper said it was the last of the Peaky Blinders. In many respects, it was, Adrian. It was fought in a very localised area, in all the back streets behind Derry End and Bordesley. So I'm looking at Glover Street, Dartmouth Street, all around there. Mac really, from, from anybody know Titty Bottle Park, Ichiku Park? Yeah, by the Blues Ground, there downwards, back down to the Derry End and to Bordesley. Fought between a very hard man called Billy Beach. I interviewed people that knew Billy Beach back in the 80s. And he fell out with a horrible, nasty, violent family of brothers who were ne'er-do-wells, racecourse rogues and ruffians, and were proud to have never done a day's work in their lives. And he beat up the one brother. And after that, they went free mob-handed. He was a hard man, he was five foot eight and a half. I was told that his neck was as wide as his head. Could never do his shirt collar up, so he never wore one. And he was a really hard man, he would fight with these. The family that he fought, eventually a gang came around him to support him. The family he fought of three brothers was called the Shell Dons. Not the Shell Bees. No. Yeah. In terms of the Garrison Lane vendetta then, did we have at that time, this is pre-war still we're talking yeah. about, was there any one single dominant gang or gang family in no. Birmingham? No, that was where Birmingham became different from London in the 20s and 30s. We didn't get that criminality. The Peaky Blinder gangs are stocking gangs. A lot of them were hard-working blokes. In court, Thomas Mucklow, who was the instigator of the attack on Port George Eastwood, the local constable said he's a hard-working chap. Many of them were. Others were like somebody close to me, petty thieves. Because you had your great-granddad was yeah. a Peaky Blinder. Yeah, Edward Derrick, my dad's maternal grandfather. grandfather. Didn't know much about him growing up because my great-grandmother Ada abandoned him. She had to leave him. He was five foot four and a quarter. Horrible, nasty, violent man. He got done like all the Peaky Blinders. They hated the police. They tried to stab the police. They'd be happy to kill him. Three police officers were killed in Birmingham. 1875 PC Lines. 1898 PC Stein. 1901 PC Gonta. 1902 PC Blinko had a thug racing from behind in Sherman Road, Street and cleaved his head with a meat cleaver. So they were horrible men. They hated the police. My great-grandfather was one of those. Hated the police. He was a petty thief. On one occasion, this is how big the criminality got, he stole a side of bacon from outside of Port Butchers. That's the, that's the measure of these men. The ones that were petty criminals were petty criminals. But he used to brutally abuse my aunt Ada. And he used to beat my great-grandmother Ada. He used to beat her up, smash the house up. I didn't have a photo of him until a few years ago. Now, my dad's paternal side, the chins, they're tall, they're five nine and a half, five ten. My granddad Jim was in the Coldstream Guards, the First World War. They're fair-skinned, bluish eyes, fair-haired. I'm small, dark-haired, brown-eyed, and sour-skinned. <laughs> My great-grandfather's record, he was five foot four and a quarter, he was small. He was sallow-skinned. He was brown-eyed and brown-haired. The only thing missing from the record that would not nail him completely to me didn't say whether he was talkative or not. <laughs> But on a serious point, he was a horrible, nasty man. And they were all horrible, nasty men. 
Yeah. So, there's not called Peaky Blinders individually. There's only one man I've come across who's called a Peaky Blinder individually, Henry Lightfoot. And he's the first one in 1895 who is called in court a most dangerous Peaky Blinder. The term, though, is used generically, collectively, for the gangs of Birmingham. So if they're not named as such. And um, you mentioned the Sheldons. I think there were, were the five sons? And they were, they were originally from Dudley. Yeah, originally Dudley, yeah. And, and ironically, Tommy and Arthur of the five were the two law-abiding, God-fearing two, weren't they? Yeah, they were. So, so these were, and, and I think yeah. Stephen Knight has said that the Sheldons were the inspirations for the Shelbys in the series, even though they're pre-war. Yeah. Tommy and Arthur were good guys, but the other yeah. three were, were all nasty pieces of work. John, uh, Tommy and Arthur broke away from the family. Uh, John was the oldest, Joseph, and then Samuel. Samuel was five foot one and a quarter. I've got a photo of him with his billy cock on. He was an original Peaky Blinder. I've got him involved in a stocking attack on the police in Heathmill Lane. Stephen Knight, in one of the interviews that he had, and I, I could only go by the interviews because I've never spoken with Stephen, um, he said that the Sheldons were his dad's maternal uncles. So that's pre-war then. So we've established that there was no single controlling gang in Birmingham. Peaky Blinders was a, a generic phrase for hooligans, ruffians yeah. of the pre-World War I period. After World War I, though, there is something which emerges called the Birmingham Gang. Yeah. And they are not Peaky Blinders, no. although some of them pre-war may have been described as that. Yeah, what, what happens to the Peaky Blinders, and this was something that, was, uh, that intrigued me, I'll take Henry Lightfoot as the example, the only man specifically called a Peaky Blinder. The last offence I've got him for in 1907, this is the kind of criminal he was, he stole 12 scrubbing brushes. <laughs> Amongst his other misdemeanours, he nicked racing pigeons, case balls, footballs. So these aren't top gangsters. But what happens to him? <laughs> At the age of 41, he says he's 37, he joins up in the First World War as a volunteer. He doesn't have to, he's too old, and there's no conscription at this stage. This is a man that's broke the law throughout his life, tried to knife policemen, that's what he got done for in 1895, and yet he joins up for his country. Old habits die hard. He punches a sergeant and gets thrown out. <laughs> he then joins up again the next year, 1915, as a volunteer, the Royal Warwicks, and at the Battle of the Somme, he received a very bad wound to his eye. There's others that I've got like that, another one, that the Hicklins are the same. So I've, got, I've done a lot of research looking at what happened to the generality of them. However, you're right, Adrian, a few of the most vicious, the most violent, the most vile, became members of pickpocketing gangs. From the 1860s and 70s, railways are opening up the country, aren't they? And there's lots of little race courses outside all the cities, Birmingham race courses, Four Oaks, Hall Green. But with the, now, with the railways, the pickpocketing gangs can go to Doncaster. It's a joke, they're bigger races, aren't they? A lot more people there. The Birmingham, the Brummager boys, as they're collectively known, these, this loose term, not like a mafia gang, don't think like that. They're a very loose collection of six, seven, and eight ruffians, violent men. And the police on the race courses are scared of them. There's not enough of them. 
they're horrible men. From the early 20th century, they are not only pickpocketing, but they're extorting protection money from the racecourse bookmakers, and this is really lucrative. They're charging them for the chalk that they write on the board with, with the names of the runners. They're charging them for the sponge that you wipe it off with afterwards. They charge them for the bucket, two and six each service. Twelve and a half pounds doesn't sound a lot, but each service probably coming to a pound. But this, a is, this is all a protection racket. Isn't all it? a protection you, racket. You, 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 yeah. you have to pay for these things. You've got to pay. So you've got six six blokes, horrible nasty men coming up to you. They've got knives. Uh, the London gangs got throat razors. The Birmingham gangs are known as the Hammer Boys from Birmingham. Why? Because they have an hammer in each pocket. But if you don't pay up, you get hammered. So you're going to pay up. Now, just before the First World War, a leader emerges who brings that loose collection of pickpocketing gangs, racecourse rogues, together in a slightly more organised fashion. His name is Billy Kimber. In the series, he's a cockney, isn't he? Remember him, series one? He wasn't. He was a big burly brummy. He'd come out of Hospital Street, Summer Lane, born in 1882. He's another peaky blinder. Again, he's not named as such. But he gets done from the age of 12 for attacking the police, petty theft, and gambling in the street. But he, be, he forms his own pickpocketing gang with his brother Joe, his brother Harry, and Thomas McDonough, and some other vicious men. And he pals up with two major London gangs, the Elephant Boys. This information about the Elephant Boys is by courtesy of Brian McDonald, who's written a great book called The Gangs of London and the Elephant Boys. And there's a family at the heart of the Elephant Boys, South London, the Elephants in Castle. They're the McDonald's, his uncles. He pals up with them, and he pals up with George Brummy Sage, the leader of the Camden Town Mob from North London. They're not, he's not a Brummy, but he knocks about with Brummies, hence his nickname. Now, after the First World War, most of these men are either deserters or they do a runner. They don't, they don't get conscripted. Billy Kimber joins up and he's a deserter. Others are in prison. Jack Allard, for example, from Sparkbrook, 1912. He murders a very hard man called Charles Cutler. They've had a row in a pub. Cutler carries on drinking after the row. Allard's waiting for him outside. He sees him coming up, hides in an entry. When Cutler gets close to him, he comes out, hits him with a judo sponge. Cutler falls backwards. Allard, got a fearsome reputation, he's got to show his reputation. He bestraddles poor old Cutler, beats him into semi-consciousness, but he still hasn't finished. He goes behind him and picks up an umbrella, and he smashes the tip of the umbrella through the right eye and into the brain of Charles Cutler, who dies the next day in agony. He's in jail. Do you know he got away with manslaughter? Because all the witnesses agreed with him, it was defence. Self-defence. You're not going to say nothing against him, are you? They're too scared. So he gets away with him. He's in, in, in prison. A lot of them are in prison, Adrian, or else they deserve. But 1919, racing's been curtailed in the First World War, and then starts again in 1919. Got a lot of men coming back with their gratuities, the payments from the army and the navy. They want to booze and gamble, some of them. Most go home, but some want to booze and gamble. Race course attendances boom, the highest they've ever been in history. So, the Birmingham gang, this loose collection of pickpockets led by Billy Kimber, reasserts its control over the racecourse rackets in the Midlands and the North with a rod of iron. The down south is anarchy. Different gangs turning over the bookies two and three times a day. Kimber is brought in. He has got a very clever man, isn't he? If he wants to take over the rackets down south, he's got a South London gang and he's got a North London mob. And they take control until 1922 when a 
brutal attack he's made upon a bookmaker, a Jewish bookmaker called Alfie Solomon. So was this at Sandown Park? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. 12th of March, 1920. 1922. Alfie Solomon is a bookie then. I've got no evidence that Solomon, not Solomon's, his real name's Alfie Solomon. And he's not from the East End, he's not from Whitechapel, he was from Covent Garden. His dad was a greengrocer. His mum and dad were born in England, so were his paternal grandparents. He wasn't, he wasn't a Hasidic Jew, was he? No, he wasn't a Hasidic Jew at all. He was a secular Jew. And he's a bookmaker. He serves in the First World War. He gets all of his medals for service during the First World War. I have no evidence at all, and I've searched deeply that he's a gangster until this event in 1922. I interviewed his brother, Simi, in 1987 in a pub in North London. And uh, it was a very tough pub. And his younger brother looked at me and he says, it was all your lot's fault. <laughs> I said, oh. He said, yeah, you mob from up north. <laughs> I was going to tell him I'm from the Midlands. <laughs> but I thought at this stage, discretion was the better form of valour. <laughs> so I left him up. We happened to call him northerner. <laughs> um, he said, your mob beat my brother up badly. He went into a lot of detail about it. I've since had that corroborated uh, by another eyewitness. And Alfie Solomon's taken his bets, and one of the hard men of the Birmingham gang, a man called Tommy Armstrong, age 41. These aren't young lads. These are men who are making a living from criminality. That's where they differ from their other Peaky Blinders who, who don't make anything from it. Alfie Solomon's standing on his stool. Tommy Armstrong goes up, this is 1921, with a £30 bet. Can you imagine that then? What would a skilled man be looking to earn three nicker? if he was lucky, a week. Now, if you're gonna have a bet with a booker, you've gotta give him the money, haven't you? Yeah. Does Armstrong give him the money? No, but if it wins, does he want pay? <laughs> yes, the horse won. Armstrong comes back, Alfie Solomon says no. And then Armstrong brutally assaulted him. He had a heavy pair of field glasses on him, binoculars. He took them off, smashed them into the face. Valfie Solomon, this is what his brother told me, and again I've had it corroborated by a written source since then. He fell backwards and he stabbed his head. And then the Birmingham gang went on the rampage. They were racist, they were anti-Semitic, they hated Jews, and they attacked every Jewish bookmaker. And one of them, an inoffensive bloke called Philip Jacobs, was so badly beaten up by Tommy Armstrong, he died. Armstrong was had up for manslaughter, so do you think any witnesses turned up? No. And in court, after, just as the case was being discharged, poor old Mrs. Jacobs, the widow, stood up and said, nobody, Your Honour, will speak against this man, he's so dangerous. As a result of that, Alfie Solomon turns to a powerful, dangerous, violent man in the background who's the governor of the East End Jewish underworld. He's a hidden figure called Edward Emanuel. I heard about Edward Emanuel back in the 80s, late 80s, when I was interviewing people about this. He's the governor of the East End Jewish Underworld. He's got the Metropolitan Police, or many of them, in his pockets. He's paying bribes. And he has been a terror of the East End. He was originally a porter at Covent Garden, earning less than a pound a week. But then in 1911, I find him being arrested for running a spieler. A spieler was a Yiddish word for an illegal Jewish gambling club. He's earning a pound a week, less than a pound a week in 1900. 11 years later, he can pay a fine of 100 pounds. This is a big man. What's he after? He wants to go legitimate. He wants to start a printing company 
to supply the bookmakers with printed racing lists, proper lists, the tickets that you get when you have a bet, the rule books. He sets up a company called the Port Sea Press. My granddad, Alf Chin, was an illegal bookie from 1922 in Stuffy Street, Sparkbrook. Our dad took over in the late 40s. I got into the business after 61, much later than that when it was legal, and I ran the business till 84. Until 1984, we bought all of our printed material from a company called the Port Sea Press. Three years later, when I interviewed the old bookies down south, they were the ones that telling me the Port Sea Press was set up by the East End Governor, the Governor of the East End Jewish Underworld, Edward Emanuel, to go legitimate. Now, to go legitimate, he's got to get rid of Billy Kimber and his London allies, hasn't he? Once they're gone down south, who's going to say no to him? So, this is his opportunity. Alfie Solomon's meeting. He knows Solomon's not strong enough. He can get a few tough Jews. He's got a few tearaways himself, Alfie Solomon has, but so is Edward Emanuel, still not strong enough. He brings in big Alf White from King's Cross and English gang. The Whites continue to be gangsters in London to the 1960s. But the real leader of the gang that is going to be brought together, the alliance to fight Billy Kimber and the Birmingham gang and their allies, the real leader of the alliance is an Anglo-Italian gangster called Darby Sabini. Remember him in series two and three? He wasn't a mafia style done. He didn't speak English with an uh, Italian accent. He was born in 1888 in Clerkenwell in North London. His mum was an English woman, Liza Hanley. But he brings his gang in and a vicious war erupts through the spring and summer of 1921. At that point then, the race courses of England are divvied up, aren't they? Because yeah. The Birmingham gang are successful to a degree, yeah. but they don't get the London and the South. No, what happens is at the end of the, the autumn of 1921, a truce is declared. And the Birmingham gang keep the Midlands, the North, the West Country, the Rackets. Sabini, Emmanuel take over most all the South and East Anglia. Overall, the Birmingham gang are happy with that because most of them are living in Birmingham. But Kimber's not, nor are the Elephant Boys, his allies, nor the Camden Tamar. So a new war breaks out in London. What's different is that there is no fighting in Birmingham. So when we saw in series one, the fictional Billy Kimber invading Birmingham never happened. No London gang had the temerity to invade Birmingham. Number one, because it was so feared, the Birmingham gang. Number two, from 1910, Billy Kimber, its leader, was living in London and was backed up by the Elephant Boys and the Camden Town mob and another little mob from Islington, the Chapel Street Market Gang. And number three, if any London gang would have invaded Birmingham, they would never have found the Birmingham gang. And I think this is where things change in the 20s and 30s. The London gangs are neighbourhood gangs, like the fictional Peaky Blinders, with a family at the heart, Elephant Boys, McDonald's. Sabini's, the Anglo-Italian Sabini gang, Clerkenwell, neighbourhood gang, Harry Sabini's involved in it, Joe Sabini as well as Darby. The Birmingham gang are drawn from all over old Birmingham. The leader, Billy Kimber, was from Summer Lane. One of his top fighters was Tony Martin from Bridge Street West. Real name, Antonio Martino. He was a Brummie Italian fighting with the Brummies against the London Italians because he was a Brummie and they were Londoners. <laughs> I knew his son very well, Alfie Martin a respectable bookmaker. All the Birmingham gang, Jack Allard, Sparkbrook, Tommy Armstrong, Conopier Street, Huygen, they were from all over Birmingham. So that's why I think, Adrian, and that's another story, why we didn't get that criminal, criminal, huge criminal gangs emerging in Birmingham the way that they did in London, because we didn't have those criminal neighborhood gangs like the Sabinis, like the Elephant Boys, plus we had Charles Horton Raptor who was our policeman.
people are comfortable there was no suffering and on a final postcard on that when he died there were what, thousands of people 1935 is in office he should have retired the, the watch committee wouldn't let him retire the home secretary said he's going to retire they wouldn't let him retire the watch committee was the councillors that ran the police got a photo from the evening dispatch it's front page and the memorial service for him was held in St. Martin's in the Boring. You've seen the photo. There are thousands upon thousands of working class bodies in and around St. Martin's. Loads more lined the streets as he went to St. Peter's in Arvon for his burial service. How many of us in this room could say who the chief constable is of our area today? Yeah? Everybody knew Rafter. And the Birmingham Aviation Dispatch headlines summed up why thousands upon thousands turned up. He cleaned up the black spots. And what he did, he made life safer for hard-working, decent, poor people whose lives had been bedeviled and benighted by the Peaky Blinders. And what he did when he came in, Adrian, I think the final reason why they were put down was he gave confidence to working-class people to act as witnesses. 1875, when PC Lines is killed, a young woman, a local woman from Navigation Street, where the attack took place, gave evidence against the gang, including Jeremiah Corkery, the murderer. He was hung. The week after the hanging, that young woman was knifed by the mother and sister of Jeremiah Corkery. This is happening throughout the 1870s and 80s, 1890s. Witnesses have been intimidated and beaten up. 1905, one of the last big Peaky Blinder attacks are finding Bristol Street. They're attacking innocent passers-by. They run off when the police come. And a woman, young woman follows them, Harriet Chaplin, and the police don't know who's who, but she points out the ringleaders. They lived in the same street as her in her street. How brave was she? And she was actually commended for her bravery in court. That wouldn't have happened 10 years before, before Rafter. Rafter gave confidence to the vast majority of the decent poor to stand up against the Peaky Blinders depredations, thanks to the fighting policemen that are coming. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to the latest episode of Adrian Goldberg's Talk Show. And just a reminder, if you do want to come and see the live shows, drop me a line, adriangoldberg at hotmail.com, and tell me that you want to be put on the mailing list for that and for my latest podcast news. And just to reiterate, if you do want to sponsor the podcast or the live shows, by all means, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again.